Good morning, church family. You may be seated, if only for a moment. For those of you who are joining us this morning, you ought to know that as a church, we preach through God's word in an expositional fashion. We're currently preaching through the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Malachi means my messenger is a messenger of God. And in this very difficult book, the messenger of God is, is bringing into view a God who keeps covenant, a God who keeps covenant faithfully and is addressing his people in legal terms, bringing charges against them for their faithlessness. It is precisely because we are faithless and that he is faithful that we gather together as a church. By means of, of introduction, before we read this text, I, I want you to have a few things in view. And first and foremost, that what we do together through the preaching of God's word is ultimately worshiping him. The one and only God. The three in one. And I want you, as we approach this text, we'll be reading from verses 10 through 16 of Malachi chapter 2. I want you to have in mind the one in three and the three in one. This is a holy and triune God. He's presenting for us the key players in his covenant here. He's the God who keeps covenant. And then we see a collection of covenant believers that comprise a larger covenant community, all connected and in communion with their covenant-keeping God. Three in one. And that said, as we move through this text, we'll see three specific allegations that God brings against his people. Trust me when I tell you that there's much that we'll need to deal with in our hearts as we approach this text today, recognizing that it is God's holy word. It is effectively three messages in one. We'll see three separate allegations, and I wanted to tell you that before we read it so that we can be mindful of what God wants us to see in this text together. If you would, please stand so that we would show reverence for this, God's holy, perfect, and unchanging word. Beginning at verse 10 of the second chapter of Malachi. Have we all not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's go before him in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for your indwelling Holy Spirit to help us understand and accept and submit ourselves to your holy word. Might we see you clearly as a holy and gracious God, as a covenant-keeping God. Might we understand rightly the relationships that you require of us with one another, that you would be honored and that you would be kept holy. I ask for your strength as your messenger this morning to clearly impart God's word. Might your voice be heard. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we'll go through three different points on today's message, three different charges against God's people for failing to keep covenant. But before I do that, I want to again turn our attention where it ought to be first and foremost, and that is to the God who keeps covenant. Verse 10 explains clearly that God is father to this covenant people. Jeremiah 31, 9 says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This is a, a father to the people of Israel, to this covenant people. And as I read through this passage, you may have noticed the word one was shared more than once. It was shared multiple times because this gives us clear characteristics of who this God is. This is Yahweh God. This is covenant God. You see, God's people were taken off into captivity. They were taken into Babylon because of their faithlessness into a land of polytheists. And as they came back out of Babylon and they were brought back to the, the city of Jerusalem in, in its ruined state, they again observed all around them people with multiple gods. And so God calls out in this passage that there, he's one, one God, he should be the, the sole place where they have placed their faith and the sole place where they have placed their hope. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that we read together at opening says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the triune God, as we learned through the book of Ephesians, we saw clearly laid out the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is three in one. This is the covenant God that we see. And as we look at this set of rhetorical questions that verse 10 begins with, we see, has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So the, the, the statement there, profaning the covenant of our fathers, requires us to do just a, a cursory review before we jump into these covenant allegations. What are the covenants that God made with the fathers of these people? Well, we, we know about Abraham, right? He, he brought Abraham up out of Ur, and he said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to have an offspring, and you're going to have a people. And was God faithful to that covenant? Amen. And, and another covenant with the fathers was, was that of Moses. God gave Moses a covenant with its laws and its statutes, and he said, if you're holy unto me, I'm going to give you a land, and it'll go well with you if you obey and did God keep up his end of the deal? Amen, he did. They were given the promised land. Moses himself saw it, didn't experience it, and God's people were given that promised land. Another covenant 
David that we read of in that psalm this morning. David was promised that he would always have a descendant on the throne. He was promised that as long as his, his sons would be obedient, they'd have a place on the throne. We know the story of his sons, right? But faithful to his promise? Amen, we know that. The son of David, Christ, that promise has been fulfilled. And we also looked over the last couple of weeks at another covenant, the covenant with Levi, the priest, right? The covenant with Levi was one of life and of fear. And Aaron and his descendants were given the charge of caring for God's temple. And God said, hey, I will be in your midst. Was God faithful to keep up his end of the deal? Amen. Yes, he was. So if we look at just those covenants, we understand that God is a covenant keeping God and his people consistently miss the mark. So with, with that in view, we understand that God's people have no right to bring charge against him. God's people had no right to ask their question, how, how did you love us? Right? But God graciously responded, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated, I chose you. But now it's God's turn. On the docket, us, his covenant people. The charges are going to be brought for us, and they're, they're threefold. And you can write these down as you take notes for those of you who like outlines. And, and the first allegation is one that we'll see that has to do with failing to obey God's commandments to marry within the covenant community. That is to say, a covenant believer ought to marry another covenant believer in order to preserve that perfect union in the covenant community. Let's read on together from verse 11. The indictment, the first indictment unfolds. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. I want to familiarize you just briefly with the word abomination. Uh, it's not one we probably used in a sentence this week, but the word abomination is something that is horrifying to us, something that brings disgust, something that ought not be. And we'll see that word in a couple of different texts that we'll look at today, but what we need to understand is that this is a direct disobedience of God's command. If you would flip with me for just a moment to Jeremiah chapter 2, we'll do a quick skim read of Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3, where God, a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God, brings to view his covenant people's failure to obey their commands. The Lord uses marriage visual images, and that's what's going to be in view this morning. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter, chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest." And then he goes on throughout this chapter and he lays out the fact that despite the fact that Israel, his covenant people were a bride, they were unfaithful. And look what they've done. Look at verse seven. God recounts his faithfulness. 
says, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And when you came in, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, and they went after things that, did not, that do not profit. You see that? God calls into view, I gave you the land of milk and honey. I gave you the abundant promised land, and what did you do? Exactly what I told you not to. That's what you did. And look at verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you. Very legal terms that God is using there, declares the Lord. With your children's children, I will contend. From the coasts, from across the coast of Cyprus, I see, or send to Kadar and examine with such care and see if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Do we see that in Deuteronomy 6 this morning as that was read? They were told to, they were going to be given cisterns to dig and to, they were going to be given God's provision in all these remarkable ways. But what did they do? They did what was unheard of. They swapped out their God, the covenant-keeping God, the one and the only, the three-in-one for the gods of everywhere around them. And I love how God, as he, he litigates against his people, asks that question, go from coast to coast. Have you ever seen anything like this? Have you ever seen a, a faithful God betrayed for gods that aren't gods at all? So keep that in mind as you flip in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. We're going to go to Ezra chapter 9 together. And this is important because this is not Israel's first strike, okay? Jeremiah laid out all that was going to happen because when they got to the promised land, they did exactly what they were told not to. They, they married foreign women. They broke God's promises, God's commands, and had to pay a consequence. That's what Babylon was all about. So by now, as we continue moving through Malachi, we'll know that the people have been brought back, and they're at it again. They've been given the land. They've been given God's grace, and here they go again. Let's read again together in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites, all the ites, right? But, but here's what Ezra is saying. Ezra, remember, he's been reinstalled by the, the Persian king to be a priest teaching the people the law. As he's teaching them the law, he's told them, and they break the law again. They come and they say, guess what? This breaking of the law isn't just being done in, by common folks. This is being done by priests and by Levites, those who are governed by his covenant. Look at verse 2 of Ezra chapter 9. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Now, I need to stop there for a minute so that we can understand something very plainly as we approach God's word. You see, the allegation there is that these priests, these Levites, married 
outside of the covenant people. It says in the ESV, the holy race has mixed itself. I want to be perfectly clear that what the scripture is talking about here isn't talking about interracial marriages, okay? God created all the races. God created all the languages. He ordained for that to take place. What did God purchase for himself? A people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So the issue here isn't marrying outside of the race. The issue here is marrying outside of the faith, We come to understand this much better. Keep your finger in Ezra 9, would you please? Keeping your bookmark, your finger, your app, whatever, in uh, Ezra chapter 9, please go back over to Malachi chapter 2 because there's there's a key principle that will help us understand what God is saying here. This isn't about interracial marriage. This is about interfaith marriage. Look what's said here. Verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Okay, think about this for a second. At the beginning, it says, don't we all have one father? Right? So our father, as covenant people, is God, the one and the only. But these other people that they're marrying are daughters of a foreign god, which means they have a different father. Brief commercial, I'm really excited that in the new year, the pulpit ministry at Pacific Hope Church will be tackling the book of 1 John, an incredible epistle. And one of the things that that incredible epistle lays out for us is a paternity test, okay? And there's only two options for who your father is. 1 John 3.11 tells us that the one possibility is that our father is God, and the other one is that our father is the devil, So we need to understand that marrying outside of the faith means marrying someone with a different father and that father is not our God. Let me make an application for those of you who are young people, those of you who are single people, those of you who are considering your your first relationship with someone, okay? You can come and you can say, you know what, I'm really interested in this guy or this girl and we have values that are very similar, we, we see things many ways the same way. He gets along with everybody. He's a really great Buddhist kid. Whoa, stop, stop, stop. You have a different father. This person is, is outside of the, the community of faith. When those brought outside of the covenant community are brought in, it has serious ramifications. If you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 give us clear instructions of what it means to be yoked with someone who is outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it in simple terms so that we can be duly warned of what this means. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with the law? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He goes on to quote the Old Testament there with such clarity Don't bring home an unbeliever. Do not make covenant 
with an unbeliever. We're clear on that? Amen. Amen. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 9 so that we can see this account unfold because there's also something very important about what we're going to see in this text. I'm going to pick up again at verse 2 of Ezra 9. Where they had taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at this evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as today. Look at verse 8. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us secure hold within his holy place, that God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving for our slavery. You see what Ezra the priest is doing here? First of all, he's distraught for the faithlessness of the covenant people. We see that this is not an isolated sin that doesn't affect the whole of the community, but it affects all of them. For that reason, when the accusation is being laid out in Malachi 2.10, it says, why then are we faithless to one another? We encompasses everyone. That's why Ezra, as a representative of God's covenant people, go before him and say, Lord, we've blown it again. We've been faithless. And then he thanks God for his grace and giving him yet another chance. He says, you've given us some reviving. If we go on, verse 12, he recounts again that they've been giving their sons and their daughters to those outside of the faith. Look at verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we have left a remnant, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand you before you because of this. See, as Ezra lays this out, he makes confession to God for the disobedience of his people and yet again sinning against them. But he also brings to view the fact that God is gracious, giving them another opportunity. All that to say, God's word is perfectly clear about the grievance that it causes to his heart and to the covenant community by marrying outside of the faith. The implications of marrying outside the faith impact all of us. I want to share a quote with you. This is an application. Again, young people, listen. This is from James Boyce. 
he warns of the consequences based on Malachi verses 2.12. It says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is a reminder. The cutting off from the tents is to be put outside of the community. You're impacting the integrity of God's covenant community. And so Boyce says this, If you willfully disobey God and marry a non-Christian, do not beguile yourself with the belief that you will be the cause of your husband or wife's conversion. By the grace of God, that may possibly happen, but usually it does not. Mixed marriages usually end in great unhappiness or divorce. And even if that is the case, you will certainly bring much unnecessary sorrow upon yourself by your disobedience. And I'll add to that quote, you'll not only bring unnecessary sorrow upon yourself, but also to the rest of the covenant community because of the disobedience. What Boyce gives there is a warning against what is sometimes called, with a grin on our faces, missionary dating. There is no provision for missionary dating. God doesn't say, hey, make a covenant with a non-believer so that they come along and understand what salvation's all about. Missionary dating, there's no place for this. That's what Boyce is, is calling out there, and he's making it clear that this is not something that we, we befriend those who have a different father who are outside of the faith for the purpose of bringing them to salvation. We're cautioned against doing that. What then are we to do with those who are part of the covenant community as covenant believers that are currently finding themselves married to an unbeliever? What are we, what are we supposed to do with that? I won't read it for you now, but at the very end of the book of Ezra, you see an incredible account with great detail that Ezra and some of the priests come up with this idea. It's basically what unfolds is a tragic scene where in pouring downpour, all the people of Israel are gathered together and they're told to put away their pagan wives. They're told to, to put away those that they've brought in inappropriately to the covenant community. And there's a mass divorce. And the word of God tells us that there were so many that had fallen into the sin of marrying unbelievers that the mass divorces took three months to process all that paperwork. Can you imagine how that would have grieved the heart of God? And how that would have grieved the people? Now, we can't say that... that Two wrongs make a right. We have to understand that God has made the covenant of marriage to be enduring. The number of, of explanations for when divorce is permissible are really short and really clear. The case of, of infidelity, that's it. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, in a time where the Christian faith is growing, the gospel is spreading. People are coming to salvation in Christ. And some found themselves coming to Christ before their unbelieving spouse. What are they to do? I'm now in a situation where I have a relationship with God and this person I'm married to doesn't. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to divorce them? What does God's word say? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 10. To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, 
she should not divorce her. He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul speaks with apostolic authority, and he explains what the situation is supposed to be like. If you find yourself today married to someone who is not in Christ, stay that way. Stay that way and live in such a way that they might come to know the salvation that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 makes it clear. For if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, right? then praise be to God. But again, I repeat the warning, if you're not married, don't use this verse as a license to go there. Oh, God will save them later. No, no, no. That's our, our first allegation. God has laid out for his people the clear guidance that they need to be marrying within the covenant of other believers. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 2 and we'll move on to the second point of our sermon this morning. The second point is a rather interesting one. In verse 13, Malachi writes, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. Look at that. It's the second thing. For those of you who like outlines, and I'm one of those guys, it sort of bothered me that in the middle of this, I have the second thing, but he never told me the first thing or the third thing. So this one sits sort of in the middle, and it's the second thing. And it's the second thing very intentionally because it helps us understand that God's grievance with the people is that they don't understand how the first thing, which is marrying outside of the faith, and the third thing, which is divorcing, impact his relationship with them, okay? This verse here is all about the fact that our covenant relationships between one another at a horizontal level impact our relationship with God at a vertical level. Look at this with me, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. I'll stop there. God's complaint with them is, you don't understand why I am not listening to you. You do not understand why I am rejecting your sacrifice. You should understand this by now. I have made it very, very clear. He gave them the law how many times? He gave them how many warnings? And still, they don't understand. What God says clearly is, you're crying because I won't accept your worship. Your worship is unacceptable. Your prayers are unacceptable. There's a couple of verses that help us understand this, that our relationships with one another impact our relationship with God. There's plenty of examples I can come up with. You got a problem with your brother? Leave your offering where it's at. Go fix it before you bring your, your offering, right? Or, or how about Isaiah chapter one? He says, when you make many prayers, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. I will cover my ears. Can you imagine that? The covenant keeping God saying, I will stop up my ears because I'm not going to listen to you. Furthermore, 
First Peter chapter three, verse seven. We saw this together as we moved through the precious book of Ephesians, and that tells us that if there's an issue between a husband and a wife, the interruption between the husband and his communication with God is clearly interrupted. That verse says this, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you to the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see that? What God is laying out in the second allegation is that the people of God should not be surprised when their communion with their covenant-keeping God is interrupted because of their sinfulness. That's why we got to keep repenting, church. That's why we got to keep coming before the Lord and relying on the abundant pardon of sin offered through Christ Jesus. That allows us to have communication. When we talk, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Amen. Yes, we can. But if there's unconfessed sin, be careful. You might trip on your way to the throne. That's what God's word tells us. He asks this question. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Remember this theme of Malachi is that we would be guilty of irreverence. We would not fear God adequately. So let this be a reminder to us. Fix the unconfessed sin, particularly in those relationships. And that's where we move in to our third point, where God lays out his problem with his covenant-believing people breaking covenant with one another. And this is a unique covenant that comes into view. This is the covenant of marriage. Third point, beginning at verse 14 of Malachi chapter 2. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. We can't understate how important the word covenant is to understand. This is not a casual agreement. This is not a handshake. This is a covenant. This is a solemn oath. This is something that is meant to reflect the permanence and the character of a covenant-keeping God. So when that covenant is violated, it has serious implications. First, I want to make an observation that the Lord just put on my heart that was fascinating to me this week. If you look at that verse, it says, Behold, because the Lord was witness. Okay? The word witness. That word comes up twice in the book of Malachi. Both times, God says that he's the witness. He's the one who, in other words, another way of translating that word witness is to solemnly warn. He solemnly warns. He's the one that observed this marriage between a hypothetical man and a hypothetical wife. These are covenant believers, right? And and he's observing this marriage as a witness. If you look at everything we know about Scripture, every example we find in Scripture about a witness, how many witnesses if there's a, an elder that has an accusation, how many people are supposed to show up? Two or three, right? If somebody offends the law under Mosaic law, how many witnesses are you supposed to have? Two or three. Throughout Scripture, there is never a precedent where like one witness is enough, but guess what? God counts as all three. <laughs> this witness, his witness counts. He's the one that's solemnly observing what has taken place.
had a chance a number of years ago to be a part of a, a wedding in Honduras. In Honduras, they have a, a plan where the government provides poor people the opportunity to get married, and they have one month a year where it's like a jubilee. If you're poor and you can't afford to have a wedding, no problem, come on down, we'll get you married. Pretty neat, huh? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had that type of a, a high view of marriage in, in society here, right? But the condition was you got to have two witnesses to come with you. They'd provide the official, and you'd have the two witnesses, and the signature would be made that this is a credible and viable marriage. It doesn't matter if you don't have a church full of people. It doesn't matter if you don't have a ceremony. You've got these witnesses. And in this case, God says, he's the witness, He's the one that solemnly certifies the sanctity and the permanence of this marriage. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is an an unbreakable union. Look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What a a remarkable statement. There it is again, one and three, three and one. It's not just a man and a wife. There's a portion of God's spirit in that. Now, some of the commentaries I looked at stated that this statement could actually have some validity to those outside of the covenant community, right? There's an aspect of God's nature and even a, a union between unbelievers, I don't know if if that statement is entirely valid, but we can see that even in the secular world, marriage is treated differently. There is something where where even among non-believers, there's something sacred and, and something different, something unique about marriage. We know as new covenant believers that absolutely God's spirit is in the union. We know that because we read the book of Ephesians and a lot of other scriptural passages, right? It says that, God made them one with a portion of his spirit in their union. The spirit that seals, that guarantees our salvation, the spirit that gives us one accord, the spirit that can be grieved in times of disobedience. But this is what God says. God says that his spirit has infused the marriage union between a husband and a wife. That means it's, it's not to be tampered with, not to be taken lightly. And when it is, it impacts all of us. It impacts the entire covenant community. What's more, as we look at and we understand the, the seriousness of this statement, God also unfolds in this covenant statement the purpose of this marriage union. And what does he say? Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. The purpose of covenant believer marrying another covenant believer is to raise young people to have the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Does being being born into a Christian family make you a Christian? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Nonetheless, the obligation there the, the purpose of God's unbreakable union is to bring up other God-fearing covenant young people. And the joy that is. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in the union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And then the, the admonition goes on, and there's a warning here. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. A comment from the the covenant-keeping God as he lays out with, with clarity what the purpose statement is. The ESV commentary lays out this statement. God's intention is a godly seed, a new generation of covenant believers. Marriage is defined by the only by the one God in covenant with his ideally unified people who ideally produce many offspring who continue the spiritually unified covenant community. Divorce betrays this. A good deal has been written about the topic of divorce and how it affects children and even adult children. The implications of this go far beyond just the man and the wife. The implications affect the entirety of the community and for that reason, God's interested in calling to mind the holiness of the covenant of marriage. We'll go to Ephesians in just a moment, but first, I want to point out that as we look at this, divorce does take place in the covenant community. But it must not. There are heavy implications for how we treat marriage within the church. And that's why we're doing things like a trip conference. We're having someone come in and realign our minds to what is the mind of Christ. We're being reminded again of the sanctity of marriage. We're also looking at doing biblical counseling so that we can offer one another advice on how to endure, how to persevere, how to hold highly what is the sanctity of marriage. James Boyce says this, and I prayerfully put this before anyone wrestling with this very real topic. Boyce says, instead of trying to find loopholes in God's commandment, trying to convince ourselves that our spouse is not a Christian, or at least is not behaving as one and is therefore divorceable, we ought to be shouting the holiness of marriage from the housetops. It is better to endure much personal unhappiness than to treat as expendable the solemn vows of the wedding service. That's what we must preach, church. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Absolutely, but it's the word of God. It's the word of God. Verse 16 puts this solemnity, puts this holiness of marriage clearly in view. ESV renders it slightly differently than NASB, but I would present to you the NASB translation of this verse. God says with clarity, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God's position on divorce, does it leave any ambiguity for us? Does that statement leave ambiguity for us? No, it does not. What then do we do with this? We preach from the, from the housetops, from the rooftops, the sanctity of God's marriage. And we also remember that all of the covenants that God has laid out point back to the fact that he is the covenant keeper. He is the God who keeps covenant. The gospel makes it possible to, to go through and to deal with difficult circumstances in daily marriage. 
The gospel makes it possible for us to, to put before God our needs, our weaknesses, because he is a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel preaches that sinners can be redeemed and transformed. The gospel preaches that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient and enough. The gospel preaches that his grace keeps no record of our wrongs. If those three statements are true about the gospel, then, the, then divorce makes the gospel a lie. The divorce would say that, that sinners can't be redeemed and can't be transformed. And divorce would say his grace is not enough. And divorce would say maybe Christ keeps no record of wrong, but I've got a long list. If you unpack that with me, the gospel says that sinners can be transformed and redeemed. If we don't believe that, what are we doing sitting here? There are other things we could do on a Sunday morning. But we do believe that. Sinners can be redeemed and transformed. And if you're in a place where you're struggling in your marriage and that's a, a difficult reality to come to terms with, then look at yourself. Are, are you a sinner who's been redeemed? Are, are you incapable of being transformed? No, the gospel is capable of transforming you, then why not your spouse? The gospel says sinners can be redeemed and transformed. What about the fact that the gospel says his grace is enough? Divorce says it's not enough. Divorce takes a verse like Ephesians and said, being kind and tenderhearted as Christ has forgiven us and says, mm, doesn't apply here. What about saying that his grace is enough that he keeps no record of wrong? Look, Hebrews chapter 10 recounts the new covenant for us. And as the new covenant is stated, it says he's going to write his law in our hearts and he's going to draw near to us. But the most remarkable statement that is made in that is, is that he'll keep no record of our wrongs. What he says of the new covenant is, your iniquities, I'm going to remember them no more. Divorce says, I'm still keeping track. What is it that Christ has done for us? He's paid it all. Go with me, please, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. A beautiful and appropriate place to, to end this. I want to skim read with you from verse 11 on, and I want to call into mind all that we see in these three allegations that God has against his people. He's charged his people with covenant unfaithfulness, and he's not wrong. He's recounted these, these covenants and how he's been covenant keeper, and then he shows us the redeeming power of the gospel. He says this, starting at verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. You see that? Remember that? Far off, separated from God. Those covenants of, of Abraham and of Moses and of David and of Levi, 
Those are even unknown by the Gentiles. But it doesn't matter. God's, God's saying, you know what? You were strangers to those covenants. I've got a new covenant for you. And here's what it is. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to those of you who are far off and peace to those of you who are near. And then verse 18 tells us, for through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You see, this is new covenant theology. This is distinct people alienated from God, alienated from one another with hostility between them. And what does Christ do? He reconciles them. If he did this in creating his church, look, he does it with individual believers too. With individual covenant believers, he brings them together and reconciles them so that they can be a part of a bigger covenant community, which we call the church. Not only that, but we're reminded, and for those who, who are presently struggling with the pain of divorce in some form or other, know that there's hope in Christ. Know that there's hope in the gospel. His grace transforms and redeems sinners. His grace is sufficient. His grace keeps no track of your wrongs. His grace makes even an imperfect union between sinners possible. Flip ahead with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. We'll end with this. This is a new covenant understanding of what Malachi was trying to lay out for his covenant people. This is what it looks like, empowered by the grace of Jesus Christ, empowered by the infusion of the Holy Spirit that we have through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is Christ's pattern for redeeming sinners, putting them together, giving them a union. And you see what he does there? He makes them holy. That's, a, that's remarkable, verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For that reason, the marriages of those of us who are covenant believers need to resemble that holiness. Holiness. 
That's why you, you can't be married to a non-believer. A non-believer is not going to help you grow in holiness. They're going to they're draw you away from that. And if you're at a point in your marriage where your marriage isn't helping your partner become more holy, confess. Turn to Jesus. Ask him for that strength to do it as it's supposed to be done. Two people, sinners, saved by the same Savior with the same Father, pointing one another to holiness. And if you've been through the, the pain, the sin of divorce, again, God's grace is sufficient. Sinners can be transformed by the grace of Son Jesus. As a church, we want to recognize the fact, I greeted you very intentionally this morning, a specific Hope Church family. That's what we are. What happens in one marriage impacts all of us. Come around one another, pray for one another, intercede for one another, avail for one another, that marriage, just like our God, would be set apart as holy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you are set apart, that you are holy, and that you have invited us. No, you have commanded us to participate in this holiness. You have asked that we be different from the world around us. You have asked that we take seriously these instructions that are for our good and for your glory. God, would you allow us as a church to depend upon you to hold high the holiness of marriage, that you would allow us to hold high our privileged status as priests of a holy priesthood. Lord God, would you forgive us for any ways that we have been faithless to you and through the power of your, your son Jesus and the blood that he shed on the cross, would you give us that holiness? Would you make us spotless? without wrinkle, without blemish, for the glory of your name. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.